Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, July 1st, 2022. Exactly one month ago, June 1st, South Park, The Streaming Wars, that's the third television film that Matt Stone and Trey Parker delivered to Paramount Plus as part of their $900 million deal, the, the, the one they signed back in August of 2001. So Streaming Wars debuted on the streaming service. Yeah, that's a lot of streaming. By the way, I, I don't know if you saw this, Drew, but it, in this case, Denver is experiencing a drought, so the people in South Park set up a different sort of streaming services and they're stealing water so their water park can run? No. (laughs) I love that. So they're dealing with a drought in which I've been talking with Alice about the heat wave you guys have been having. She's mitigating it with Otter Pops. What are you and Katie doing? I mean, we are just blasting the AC. I mean, I can't have the air conditioner on when we're recording, Jim. So mm-hmm. by the end of this uh, recording, I might just be a puddle oh. in here. But oh. uh, Okay, yeah. moving quickly, moving quickly then. Okay, <laughs> speaking of which, the trailer for Streaming Wars Part 2, which will debut on Paramount Plus on Wednesday, July 13th, just debuted this week. And at least based on the images they're sharing, Sandmarsh pulls a Karen at the water park, and, and they even have him wearing the official Karen haircut. So, Did you watch uh, Beavis and Butthead? I have not yet. I am genuinely behind the curve streaming-wise. But that said, when we got home, Nancy and I made time to at least watch Baymax, uh, which we'll talk about in the second half of today's show, which I thought was charming as hell, trying to make time to watch the Sea Beast, which I know you've seen, and we'll, we'll al- yes. also talk about in the second half of the show. But lots of streaming news this week, folks. But first, before we get to the news, news portion of today's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, last week, folks, when Drew and I were recording, I was in the hotel room in West Palm Beach using a Dixie cup and string. You were not going to the Minions Rise of Gru red carpet or the press event? It was the the premiere. I don't know if you know this, Jim, but Mm -hmm. Minions took over Hollywood last weekend. They had a record store. There was all sorts of things going on. And I couldn't make it to the premiere, but I did see the movie. And... I, it's it's another Minions movie. I don't know. It's cute. It's uh, annoying, mm-hmm. probably in equal measure. Very episodic. Okay. Yeah, it's about what you would expect. But, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Okay. Sure. They didn't do Thursday night previews. They actually started showing Minions The Rise of Gru in 3,350 theaters yesterday afternoon at 2 o'clock. You remember when that was supposed to be midnight, Jim? And it, they just keep bumping it up, you know? What are you going to tell Universal? They sold $10.75 million worth of tickets yesterday for this thing. And in fact, it's projected that it will sell $29 million worth of tickets today, Friday, July 1st. And if that trend continues, Rise of Gru over the long 4th of July weekend is expected to sell $110 million worth of tickets in North America, which is more than double what Lightyear earned over its opening weekend. That is insane to me. I'm not going to lie, because that's the other thing. I did manage, while I was away, to get to see Lightyear, 
And it's exactly what you said it was. It's this wonderful film, that lovely homage to the sci-fi films of the 1970s. And I didn't want to buy a socks. Scene 7? Oh, Super 7. Super 7. Oh, the replica. But after having seen the movie, oh my God. And actually going over the Studio 7 and looking at what they have there... Oh, did you not know about Super 7? They're they're an amazing company. Oh, this was a mistake. Yes. (laughs) You know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, for example, their 16-inch version of Pinocchio or Ben Alligator. Oh, my God. Those are amazing. I'm just trying to think, where am I putting this? The Snoopy that comes in the crate from the Daisy Hill Puppy Farm. I mean, mm-hmm. mind you, these things are $295 each. And the socks, which comes in a property of Star Command cat carrier, that's 400 But, man, these things look great. Well, yeah, what I love about socks is it really splits the difference between um, movie replica mm-hmm. and character toy you know so it's like kind of the best of both worlds oh no no absolutely absolutely it, it's an amazing toy i i am trying to do the math or mm. you know talk to my local bookie or something to figure <laughs> out how to get it but um <sighs> you and me both yeah. you and me <laughs> yeah. both all right uh, to slide back to rise of groove for a sec illuminations they're almost religious about the July 4th weekend or the vicinity when it comes to these movies. I mean, original Despicable Me came out July 9th, 2010. Despicable Me 2 came out July 3rd, 2013. We then got the first Minions standalone film, uh, July 10th, 2015. And then June 30th, 2017, Despicable Me 3 came out. Now, the Minions sequel was announced in January of 2017, out ahead of the release of Despicable Me 3. So this was already chugging along. If things had gone according to plan, this was originally supposed to open July 1st, 2020, right? Oh, yeah. But we then, all saw the merch back then. We did. We did. That's yeah. a, Oh, my God. I completely forgot about the merch. Yeah. yeah. But again, May of that year, or excuse me, March of that year, the pandemic happens, and Illumination McGuff, I guess that's their Paris-based studio, shuttered. And so, you know, they literally contacted Universal and said, we can't finish this movie in time. So first they pushed the release date back a, a year, it's, it's July 2nd, 2021, and then in March of 2021... Universal took a look at what was going on in theaters, and it wasn't there yet. People weren't comfortable going back to theaters yet. So Minions Rise of Gru gets its release date pushed back to July 1st, 2022. So this film is is a full two years behind schedule, but maybe that was a good thing? Because think about it. It's, you know, it's just one of those absence makes the heart grow fonder thing, because the time between when Despicable Me 3 and Minions The Rise of Gru opened in theaters, it's it's been roughly five years, where as if we look at what happened with Toy Story 4 and Lightyear, it's only been three years since Toy Story 4 opened in June of 2019. And I wonder if that really is a factor, that there wasn't necessarily an appetite yet for a Toy Story-related film, because I honestly think, Drew, you you are not wrong about what's going to happen with Lightyear. I think this is this is going to be Encanto Revisited. That yeah. As soon as this shows up on Disney+, Plus, everybody's going to see this and realize what a great film this is. But the four Toy Story films to date, 
have earned $3.2 billion worldwide, which is just slightly less than the five Despicable Me Minion movies have made. They, they've made $3.7 billion worldwide. But if we're talking the all-time earner for animated features, that is still Ice Age as of April. How? How? The Ice Age films do crazy numbers overseas. They always have. But they're currently at $6 billion worth of worldwide ticket sales. And Disney is quite serious about revisiting this. And, and in fact, we're just hearing from somebody who works in the parks about we're about to see the first stuff featuring blue sky characters on the Skyliner. Evidently, they're, they're going to skin at least one of the cabs for the Ice Age characters, and I think the other one's going to be for Rio. So, wow, yeah, it, it, it's coming. I mean, we saw the the Wild Adventures of Buck Wild or the Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild on Disney Plus not so long ago, and and there's definitely another feature length one coming, though I don't know. You know, again, in this weird space of Disney Plus theatrical, I, I have no idea. So, beyond that, were you paying attention? To the news that was coming out of the Essence Festival of Culture in New Orleans this year? Yeah, I, w- I had to write that up, actually. Today. Did you really? Yeah, okay. before, I had, before I took off a half day. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was interested. I mean, you, you and Lynn clearly knew that this is where they were going to reveal this. <sighs> uh, you had referred to it in an earlier yeah. episode. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the certainty to which you said, oh, it'll be revealed next month kind of tipped me off but yeah we got a name so we got tiana's bayou adventure well i i I have to tell you that name has been focus grouped within an inch of its life all right let's hear some of the other ones first of all the name they were trying to get people to embrace was tiana's bayou adventure at splash mountain because they want to keep the Disney mountain range thing going. But that didn't work. And there was the Tiana's Mardi Gras celebration. There was three or four of these sorts of, you know, but it was always at Splash Mountain because they really, really, really want to keep the Disney mountain range going. And that just didn't seem to happen. Have they talked about how they're going to reconcile the period with the Old West setting of the Walt Disney World one? What's kind of interesting is when you bring this up to the Imagineers, it's like, okay, uh, let me direct your attention over to Tomorrowland, okay, where you walk into the land, and the first thing is, you know, a door that takes you to the Monsters, Inc. world. And then you, you, you know, walk a little further up the street, and there's Buzz Lightyear Star Command. It's like, it's only the theme park purists who actually take this crap seriously. It's just sort of like, get <laughs> Well, over. I don't like that their, their explanation is to point to another crummy area of the park. I know what you're saying, but it's just literally, look, we can bring a Princess and the Frog attraction into the park. So we can take an attraction that opened, and and remember, the original Splash Mountain, well, the first one opened in Disneyland in July of of 89. The Disney World and the Tokyo version? I I looked looked at this when I was writing up my piece. Yeah, I mean, it opened within one day of one another. I mean, Tokyo opened first, October 1st, 1992, and Disney World opened just one day later on October 2nd. From day one, this has been kind of problematic, and if you look at the choices about, eh, we don't have Uncle Remus, we have Frog, they knew this. They knew going in 
that this was going to be something they'd have to deal with further and further, further down the line. And this is where we are. That said, what's so funny is to watch the people online look like, really? We just got Ratatouille Adventure or Remy's Ratatouille Adventure and now it's Tiana's Bayou Adventure. And But Disney's been doing the adventure thing. I want to say Indiana Jones Adventure was the first, quote unquote, Rhyme well, we, we think of that as Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye. Generally. Well, there we yes. go. Yeah. Yes. And, and again, you want to talk about another name that you know, it's like, <laughs> please say this. It's like, no, where's the Indiana Jones ride? Right. But we got Micro Adventure, the Tokyo version of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That was 97. Unless I forget, Universal Islands Adventure theme park opens in May of 99, followed by Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh at the Kingdom. What about Snow White Scary Adventures? Right? There we go. Yes. Okay. And now it's Snow White's the <laughs> magical Snow White's witch. Gentle, yeah. yeah. There we go. There we go. Get a very polite back robe. Yes. That's just that sort of attraction. But well. You know, I thought it was interesting, the timing of it. So it'll it'll be after the first season of Tiana is on yep. Disney+. Plus. And that's not a coincidence. Right. Did you see the drawings of her, too? It looks like she's got a new outfit. Oh, um, very much so. Very yeah. much so. But the merch people are not happy. Because the merch people, they want Tiana in the attraction. And hit her wedding dress. The thing we saw at the very end of the film. But when Tiana drops next year, there will be a robust retail program. In fact, that's supposedly the first time they'll do this. And they're also looking to do the same thing with the Moana Limited series. But it's out ahead of when that drops in 2023. It's like, okay, full retail program and little girls having seen the limited series will know this version of Tiana when they go to Tiana's Bayou Adventure in late 2024. That's an optimistic timeline, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I've, I've already been told that Disneyland most likely will be able to meet the late 2024, but there's just no way Walt Disney World will. So right. uh, that may actually be a good thing because with this opening in the spring of 2025, it at least gives Disney something when Epic Universe opens down the road across from the convention center. Disaster. Yeah, yeah. So Well, I did hear a cute story about our friend Eric Goldberg uh, mm -hmm. sort of instructing the Imagineers on how Lewis moves, um, which oh, I thought was very nice. So, that's great to hear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that there will be some fidelity to whatever version of the characters are at that point um, in the attraction. So, By the way, the OLC group, that's what the Oriental Land Company likes to call itself these days. They have absolutely no plans to change Splash Mountain. Right. They're not interested in it. They view it as a solid attraction that guests love, and they feel like they sell a lot of merch and plush. And it's like, it's literally one of these things. No, thank you. And that's the other thing. I'm hearing Splash closes after holiday 2022. So if you if you want to see the, this version of the attraction, maybe get to the park before January or at the absolute latest February of 2023. Oh, that makes that makes the late twenty twenty four date a complete fantasy. I think I thought they were going to close it in like the next two months, no, but no, they <laughs> especially at Walt Disney World, 
people who I wanted to say goodbye. I wanted to get to see that attraction. So, uh, and you know they'll still do a they'll they'll decry the politics of the movie, but they'll still do going away plush and absolutely you know, absolutely t shirts. It will be supported with with a merch program. But yeah, I'm hearing they will announce the official close date. Uh, D23 in September, and then again, look for it to close in January, February 2023. And then 18 months of teardown, install, rebuild, soft open. And that's the other thing, that uh, ride system basically remains the same, but there will be some show control issues and new sets and yada yada. What's that? What's your favorite uh, Aerosmith song, Jim? Dream On, I think is what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and on that optimistic note, okay, folks, we're going to take a break here. And when we get back, we're going to talk Baymax. We're going to talk our uh, Sea Beast. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What can you tell me about Marcel the Shell with shoes? Have, have you made oh, to see that? Oh, I loved Marcel the Shell with shoes on, Jim. Mm -hmm. I thought this movie was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a faux documentary. Mm-hmm. And you, you've seen the original short film from well, yeah, I feel like, it's I mean, like but, a decade ago at this well, point. Well, no, that's right? exactly August of, of 2010. With Jenny Slate uh, was the writer in The Voice and Dean Fleischer Camp. Yeah, I think they were in a relationship at the yeah. time. The story was that she she did The Voice at a wedding. I think, right? Uh, did you hear the story? No, I've heard the story. Yeah, yeah. And they sort of backed into this thing that they did. And then there were the two follow-up shorts, I want to say one in November of 2011, the other in October of 2014. And then it's like, we're going to do something long form. And then it's like, seven years later? Yeah. The film debuts at Telluride in September of last year. And that's when A24 picked it up, right? I don't know. I think they picked it up a few months later, I think. Okay. But by the time it was at South by Southwest this year... I think they already had it. And yeah, it's a it's so it's like A24's first like kids movie, which is mm -hmm. cool. Yep. And the animation is really beautiful and affecting and it's it's it was um largely designed and built by the Chiodo brothers who mm. are friend our friends from Killer Clowns from Outer Space and uh Alien Xmas and and so many things. Mm -hmm. And it's just really sweet and affecting and like it sort of shot like a documentary and you know, the filmmaker played by Dean is living in the house and he's interacting with the shells. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a, it's a lovely movie. I was shocked at how much it resonated with me. It's very emotional and impactful and, and just very kind. It's just a sweet little movie. I loved it to death. You're not alone because it opened on June 24th. It's only in six theaters in the United States and Canada. But it managed over its opening weekend to rack up $169,000, which when you're only in six theaters, that's crazy money. Yeah. So it goes into wide release on July 15th. So we're two weeks out. Now, my problem is this is A24. So 
what does wide release mean for them? I don't know. I mean, they're having a great year, right? With um, everything, everywhere, all at once becoming this is their true. highest this is true. grossing movie. I really feel like this could kind of continue that wave because it's a movie for everybody. Little kids can watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, adults, you know, though you'll get different things out of it. It's got a great voice cast. Mm-hmm. And it's just wonderful. I, I cannot say... Good, enough good things about this movie. I thought it was just absolutely adorable and really, really affecting and great. And okay. Yeah, okay. I can't wait to hear what you think, Jim, because I think no, no, you'll no. love it a lot, too. I, again, a huge Jenny Slate fan. This one's been on my radar for a long, long time, so really hoping that it, it does, in fact, get a, a wide release, because I'd love to see this in theaters. Okay, we now pivot to Baymax, the new limited series from Walt Disney Animation Studios. Baymax exclamation point, Jim. I didn't hear that exclamation I'm point. I'm Baymax. Okay, there we go. Okay, Emphatic. <laughs> okay, which, of course, is a you know, follow-on from uh, Big Hero 6, which was released to theaters back in November 2014, directed by Chris w- Williams and Don Hall. And then we got our Big Hero 6, the animated series, which ran for three seasons between November 2017 and February 2001. And now we have, I mean, it's six, the most of them run 10 minutes long, 11 minutes long, right? So it's... Yeah, like between eight and mm-hmm. 11 minutes long, yeah. We've got three of them directed by, you know, Disney veteran Dean Wellen. Uh, he did episode one, two, and three. Then Lisa Trayman did, I think, my favorite of the bunch, Sophia, the tween girl is dealing with her period. And then Dan Abram, uh, oh, excuse me, Dan Abrams did the movie. I thought Dean came back for the last episode. He did. He did. Okay. Okay. But Dan did Mimbata, the gentleman with the the fish allergy, and then Mark Kennedy did the wonderful, almost silent episode with the cat. But yeah, you're right. Dean comes back for the the final wraparound episode, which sort of brings all the story threads together. But I don't know if you've seen any of the, the press that's out there, but Don Hall, who sort of rode herd on this, talked about how... His inspiration were the medical dramas of his youth, like Marcus Welby, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the notion was that, of... Was that Robert Young or no? <laughs> that, that, no, that's it. Robert Young, yes. Okay. You know, yeah, the, the, the whole notion of you found a medical problem at the beginning and then you dealt with it, you know, the, yes. the, in a kind, gentle way. And, and that's... Very house MD. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> you know... <laughs> kinder. Yeah, much kinder than house. Yeah. But... Particularly if you you binge it, if you watch all six of them together, it really tells a, a lovely story. Yes. Keep an eye on the periphery because you might see characters that pop up later in the show and things like that. Um, That's it, exactly. Yeah. And we don't want to spoil anything. but No, 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 no. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. But I'm just so happy for Dean, who has – he's been at Disney. If you count when he was at you know his first credit – which is for the studio, which is actually he's it was a storyboard artist on Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. Oh, wow. That was back in 2000. But but prior to that, he started it at Warner's. He was a storyboard artist on Hysteria, which was. Well, the less the less we talk about that, the better. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's the Animaniacs guys trying to do something educational and it felt like a new government law had been passed about additional uh, educational television or something but I, yeah. yeah but there's still some stuff in that that I, I mean I love the 
George Washington is Bob Hope. You know, I got to tell you, kids. You know, even in 1995, Jim, uh, Bob Hope was not really resonating with the kids. I, I, don't think, I, but... I, I, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> okay. But the thing is, because he's in the building working on Hysteria as a storyboard artist, he does get to work on The Iron Giant in 1999. So he does sort of his Disney tryout and ends up back at Warner's in uh, 2001 doing, you know, working on Osmosis Jones. In fact, he's, he's one of the animators who works on Thrax, the villain of that. Also uh, works on another relatively short-lived Warner Brothers television animation series, The Duck Dodgers Show. And then 2002, he's back at Disney, only this time he's on the feature side. He's, he's working with the team on Treasure Planet, uh, uh, among the folks who were working on Jim Hawkins. And that's still a, a great film, or at least I think it is. I, I was really impressed the last time I watched it. I thought it was really No, it, 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 holds, really it holds up nicely. But this is also during the time when Disney is laying off people left and right. So Dean ends up bouncing around. So he works on Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights. He works on that Fat Albert movie, the the one. Uh, yes, with Keenan, right? There we go. Yeah. But then starting in 2005, he's solidly at the mouse. And he starts as an additional story artist at, on Chicken Little. And, and what's interesting in 2007, have you ever seen his short TikTok tale? Yeah, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's one of these things where it kind of bothers me that it's gotten as little play as it has. I mean, I think it turned up on that short collection, which, it, let's be honest here, is is more than happened with Glago's Guest. Speaking of Chris Williams, where the hell is that? Yeah, no, that's it exactly. It always makes me crazy that that one, never mind about the cutscenes from the chunks that were, were cut out of the Black Cauldron. Somewhere in the Disney vault is Glago's guest, and I would just like to see it up on a screen. Just, at some how, point. how, what, could, what, what could it cost to put it on the streaming service? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just there's some reason they don't want to share that. But getting back to, uh, you know, he he toggles back and forth between a story artist. He works on Bolt. But he also keeps his hand in as an animator. He works with the team on Princess of the Frog that does Dr. Facilier. And then from there, it, it's uh, he's solidly, you know, a guy who, who works in story. We've got him working story on Tangled and Frozen and Big Hero 6, Zootopia, Moana. Uh, likewise, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. But the, the credit that genuinely intrigues me uh, is the one from 2021 where Dean is the director of pre-production on Rhea and the Last Dragon. And if you think about what that would have been like, Drew. Well, he was a cre- he was a director on it, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was one of the directors before they did the switch, right? That's it exactly. But if you think about making that movie and and as spectacular as that film looks, as the studio is sliding into the pandemic, where suddenly you you know you you have to figure out how to do this from home. That's huge. But the other one, again, if you drill down into his credits, they have him listed for 2024. He's supposedly the director of an untitled fantasy project for Walt Disney Animation. And now the problem is this is clearly dated information because they list his co-director as Paul Briggs. And you and I both know Paul left Disney after a 25-year career also as a story artist. He's over at Netflix right now. Yes. I don't. I actually don't think Dean is still there either. 
Oh no! Really? Yeah, oh. I think somebody told me that recently, okay. and I can uh, if if somebody knows differently, please reach out on Twitter. But yeah, I mean, you remember Dean's space race movie too, oh, God. right? You're right. You're right. So he's got he's kind of been a guy that's almost had it, and yeah. he has a great sense of action and choreography, and mm. they just haven't let him have his own movie yet, and it's just it's very silly because. You know, he, he was kind of attempting a, um, it was almost Space Mountain-ish. Um, yep. Yeah. It was kind of a retro future thing, mm. and it sounded great to me, but it, it, and it was in development for a while, too. Yeah. Well, if we can stress the upside here, you look at Baymax, exclamation point. And you know, what a great calling card. You know, it, it, this guy could go anywhere and work for I anybody. I agree. It was really cool to see that level of animation too. Oh no, no, in no, a no totally, totally. I mean, the, that the was car the chase and the, um, you know, the fish, the fish guys episode, I thought was just great. First of all, the Mibata episode, I loved just the matter of fact attitude about two gay men and and the notion of them flirting in a minor, low key way, just yep. like in real life. Well, what about the trans character in the um, menstruation episode? And that makes me crazy that there are both conservative politicians as well as folks who, who work that side of the street in media who are trying to change this into a thing. And it's like, look, if we take this episode, if we take uh, the Sophia episode of Baymax exclamation point, and if we take Turning Red, the fact that inside of a single year we have two Things talking about young teen girls and menstruation and just being upfront and normal about it because it's normal. Yeah. But going straight forward into the uh, the pads thing is confusing and yes, people treat you differently and maybe they shouldn't. And that thing in when there's Baymax is standing in the aisle and he has six people around him all offering suggestions. And it's like, that is so real. That is so true. I say this as a dad who's, you know, <laughs> occasionally had to make a, a trip to right. the store. And you stand there in the aisle and, you know, it's like, I'm in over my head. Which special feature do I need to bring home? <laughs> you know, so, no, I love that. And that's not something to condemn. That's something to celebrate, you know. And, yeah, I agree. You know, you know, and the fact that the trans man it, is there, and it's just so matter of fact. And that, again, that's the thing. Disney and Pixar are making an effort to reflect real life. In fact, that when Nancy and I, uh, you know, got to see Lightyear this past week, that kiss that everybody's making such a big deal of, it's the notion of the story where uh, that aspect, when, when Buzz has the opportunity, when he, he meets up with Zerg and, and he can they can go back in time and change everything in the notion of, well, if I do that, I erase the lives that all of my friends had. And it's like, no, these have value. You know, I mean, I'm not going to do that. And that's a great lesson that, that people's lives, their full lives have value. Yeah, I was I was very impressed that her her homosexuality was really a, a big part of the character. That, that was oh, yeah. part of her life. And yeah. it was just matter of fact. And Buzz was very accepting of it. Totally. And, and without that moment, it makes that sequence, which I don't know about you, Jim, but I think I am so impressed with that whole time travel sequence of him trying to, to get off the planet. It just adds so much sort of weight 
and emotionality. It does. It uh, you know, and and I honestly cannot wait for this to turn up on Disney Plus again because I'd I'd love to revisit this film. In fact, I'm this far away from sending a, a note to Angus McLean to like you made a great movie. You really did. Don't pay attention to the box office. Pay attention to what happened to the Rocketeer. Pay attention to what happened with Hocus Pocus. Give this movie twenty years and. Little kids are, are going to love it, and they're going to become adults. And this is their Buzz Lightyear. This is, in a weird sort of way, you know how people have been talking about what's going on with Obi-Wan Kenobi with the little kids who grew up watching the prequels, and now this is their Star Wars? I think the same thing will happen with, with Lightyear. This will be their version of the character. And have you seen that they actually have a Buzz Lightyear from this film in the parks now? Yeah, I think that's really cool. I actually, uh, last weekend after we recorded, I mm-hmm. saw it in IMAX, oh, um, wow. which was really amazing. It's the first Pixar movie. I think it might be the first animated movie at all to actually be designed with the IMAX screen in mind. Mm-hmm. So it fills up the full screen. So even if you see Top Gun, it won't fill the entire screen. This one mm-hmm. filled the entire screen, and it was really amazing. You know, moments mm-hmm. like... Izzy's spacewalk towards the end of the movie. It's just It's oh. just like you're like falling out of your chair. You know, it's really, Holy really God. impressive. That's again, the, the action scenes in this were so well staged. And likewise, I love the little bits of connective tissue to stuff that we'd heard previously in the Toy Story films. I mean, they again, it was it's, it's a lovely crafted, great fun film worth checking out. But, but again, we were talking about Baymax, exclamation point. Which again, Don Hall, who directed the original film, had consulted on. And of course, the if we're talking about the original film, Big Hero 6, it was also directed by Chris Williams, who is not only the director, but also the co-writer of The Sea Beast. And you've gotten the chance to see this, right? Yeah, I'm a big shot, Jim. I don't know if we've established that here, but you know... <laughs> I'm a, I'm a half shot. Or, or, or I missed the target constantly. Anyway, so you were sick. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, I saw it right before I got sick. So whenever that was, two or three weeks ago, I thought it was really amazing. I thought it was mm-hmm. really, really great. It's on Netflix. You'll, if you're mm-hmm. listening to this on Tuesday, it'll be on on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. Do you have a screener, Jim? Did you get to watch it yet? I have not. You okay. know, in fact, depending on where you go, they're saying there will be there was a theatrical release of the Sea Beast on June 24th, or it's being released theatrically on July 8th. And I can't get a straight answer out of anybody in Netflix. And I've heard from a lot of folks that you really want to see them going after the red bluster on a big screen. Yeah, I would love to see it on a big screen. I, I might go to the premiere next weekend, so mm-hmm. which is at the Autry Museum. Jim, which is it really designed oh. by Walt Disney Imagineering? Have you ever been there before? No, or? and I've heard the theater is amazing. So I'm, oh. yeah, I think I'm gonna have to do it. What Drew's talking about here is the Gene Autry Museum for Western Heritage. I want to say, right? Uh, yes, at Griffith Park, probably there in we there go. somewhere. Right there, we go. Yeah, and this was during the period when Walt Disney Imagineering was trying to get into the museum designing business. And this is Gene Autry, you know, the, the gentleman he owned uh, the Angels at that point, right? Uh, yeah, and he 
what what is that now the Parker Palm Springs is uh, was a Holiday Inn that he owned where there they would go. do the spring training. So if mm-hmm. you ever go to the Parker and go see that giant field out back, that's where they would train. I did not know that. Yeah. And Gene had this amazing collection of props and well, not only stuff from from the films he made, but likewise he had collected genuine pieces of Americana and the whole notion was taking his collection and creating this space for them and I'll love to talk with you after you've seen the premiere of The Sea Beast uh, and see what you, you think but get there a little early check out the museum I mean it's because it in a lot of ways you're going to pick up gonna, oh yeah that the Imagineers had a hand in this there's between the rock work outside and the way the, the exhibit space and how you move through the museum very, very much drawing from the Disney theme park design world, but at the same time, very much in support of what Gene brought to the table. Yeah, I think I think it's a good excuse to go over there. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait. So, all right. Well, uh, anyway, folks. Okay, so next show, after Drew goes to the, the premiere, uh, we'll talk in depth about the Sea Beast. But for now, uh, again, Drew has his wonderful Light the Fuse, a.k.a. Light the Fuselage podcast. And we, we have to talk about uh, Top Gun Maverick four weeks after it's been out in theaters. And it, it comes within inches of, well, I mean, for a time this past weekend, it was number one at the box office. Yeah, right? it really looked like it was going to squeak by, but mm-hmm. it did not. It just $1.4 million separated what the new Elvis movie with Tom Hanks made and what Top Gun Maverick made. But, but, but that basically doesn't matter because also this past weekend, Top Gun Maverick became Tom Cruise's very first billion dollar earner. Can you believe that? Doesn't that seem like a error or something? It's like I, I have to I have to say, given how long he's been in the business and given how huge the Mission Impossible film franchise is, I'm kind of shocked that this is his first, you know, the one to go blow through the billion dollar barrier. But if I was if I was Paramount, I would be very excited about Mission Impossible Seven oh, next summer. Yeah, you know? yeah. So to have this a... momentum and to, then to have it come out so quickly after Top Gun. I mean, oh, no, no, yeah. you know, again, you're not wrong. And, and and the fact that you know that then you have part two. It's like, <laughs> oh, can we have three billion dollars? Could, could, could. But anyway, I, I think I, so. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, though, uh, what are you and Charles doing over with your Light the Fuse podcast? I think this week we, um, you know, we're kind of doing Light the Fuse slash Light the Fuselage with Lauren Balf, who mm-hmm. is the composer of Mission Impossible Fallout and the next two. And he uh, is the, I think he's credited as the music supervisor or producer or something on Top Gun Mavericks. So mm-hmm. we talk about everything. He's great. It's a great conversation. Um Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, well, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to now, fine tuning, but also light the fuse, light the fuselage. Um, well, again, that, that helps people find the show, that it helps people, uh, gets us additional ears and eyeballs. What about uh, your other shows, Jim? Uh, yeah, yeah, we got some other ones here. We got Disney Dish with Lentesta. We got uh, Marvelous Disney, I Do with Aaron Adams. Uh, likewise, we have Looking at Lucasfilm with uh, Brian Gunn. And if, you, if you, you're looking for something to listen to, those are there too. But if you, you like what you listen to tonight, folks, if you want to head 
over to Bandcamp and subscribe. That's good too. But also, and again, I know I say this every show, but seriously, if you are not following Drew Taylor on social media, you are missing out on so much fun and good, sharp observations about things that are going on in entertainment at real, in real time. So can you tell the nice people where they can find you on social media, Drew? Sure. It's Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter. So come on by. Cool, cool. I can never hope to get as many followers as Jim Hill Media, but I'm getting there, Jim. I'm getting yeah, there. there are five. <laughs> Possibly six if, if I, I can convince my mom. All right. Anyway, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media. And over on Facebook, it's Jim Hill Media News. And that's going to do it for this week, folks. And want to thank you for listening. And have a, well, again, this is going up on Tuesday. So hope you had a, a happy and safe 4th of July.